wonderful to have you all here. So this is a special evening with uh, Meet the Artist and uh, the artist who is here with us is Jake Chapman who came from London. My name is Milena Kalinowska and I'm Director of Public Programs and Education at the Hirschhorn. Tonight we are delighted to have with us Jake Chapman of the, as they are called, Notorious Chapman Brothers or Enfant Terrible of young British artist team and now I think we can call them veteran provocateurs who have collaborated together for the past 23 years. No corrections, Jake, no corrections. <laughs> um, Jake will discuss with us the Chapman series Insult to Injury, which is on view in our Damage Control Art and Destruction exhibition, as well as the theme of destruction in his and his brother's work. For more information about our programs as well as podcast recordings of previous programs, please visit our website at hirshhorn.si.edu. I also would like to acknowledge support of our members and thank you, Barbara and Aaron Levine, for the additional support of this event. I also would like to acknowledge generous funding provided for the Damage Control Exhibition by Japan Foundation, Terra Foundation for American Art, and Swiss Arts Council Pro Helvetia. I would like to acknowledge some of my colleagues, manager of special programs Kevin Hall, for his assistance with tonight's program. And I also would like to extend my thanks to Kerry Brower, interim director, for his ongoing support of public programs. Now let me turn to the artist. Jake Chapman was born in 1996, in 1966. Yeah, I know, a real baby. <laughs> You know, it's like my son, he's already... <laughs> you like that? Okay. In, in 1966 in Chetlham, and Dino's his brother, in 1962 in London. The violent and controversial imagery of the Chapman's collaboration since 1990s and the brothers, a place in young British artists showcases such as Brilliant and Sensation, as well as Turner Prize nomination in 2003. Throughout their career, Chapman's have repeatedly engaged with the disasters of war, Goya suite of etchings depicting the atrocities of the Napoleonic Wars, rendering the horrific scenes as hobbies, miniatures, life-size sculpture tableaus, and wallpapers. For Injury to Insult to Injury 2004, currently on viewing damage control, they purchased a full edition of 80 etchings and rectified them by replacing victims' heads with grotesque cartoons of the heads of monsters and insects. Morality, the history of art and consumer culture, looms large in the Chapman's current individual show, Come and See, at the Zaha Hadid Design Serpentine Suckler Gallery in London. It's on view until February 9th, and I know that Jake will speak to us about that show. Come and See demonstrates the range of artists' outputs, from painting, drawings, printmaking, and sculpture, to film, music, and literature, exploring their provocative and deliberate confrontational works which approaches controversial subjects with mockery and black humor. Brothers have had numerous 
solo exhibitions. Just to mention a few, Pinchuk Art Center in Kiev, the Hermitage in St. Petersburg, Museo Pino Pascale in Italy, Hastings Museum in UK, Kerstin Gelschefahen in Hanover, Tate Britain, London, Tate Liverpool, and so on. Uh, one of the earlier ones was at PS1 Contemporary Art Center in New York. They have, of course, participated in numerous group exhibitions. Serpentine Gallery, Julia Peyton Jones and Han Ulbricht Obrist say that the Chapmans compel us to confront the nagging fears that lie at the dark hearts of the Western psyche. Well, let's hear from Jake himself. Um, I would like to say thank you very much for oh, inviting me here to, um, to come and talk and for including our work in the exhibition. Um, it's very kind of you and we're very flattered to be involved and it's very nice to be here. Um, I am going to read a short story that was written to coincide with an exhibition that just opened at the Sackler Serpentine Exhibition in London. And the title of this essay and exhibition are both um, called Come and See. Um, I'm going to try and read this. This is quite hard to read because my writing is, by its definition, quite turgid. Um, but after the reading of the um, essay, the short story, um, I'm going to show you a film. And the film is called Fucking Hell. And it's uh, the film which is actually on show at the Serpentine as we speak. Probably not now because everyone's uh, gone to bed. Um, so I'm going to show you these images. I'm going to show you images of the show as well as I, t as I tell you the story. So if you, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm going to bore you with the story, but I hope I'm going to impress you with the images. Um, okay. Come and see. It did not matter much to Gregory Fourier that his adoration of chlamydia love was unreciprocated. In accepting that she was oblivious to the mortal fact of his being alive, it did, however, cheer him that she seemed happy each time he switched her on. This fascination with chlamydia love is deeply unhygienic, declared Hans Voss, poised beside his seated underling, a paternal hand lightly depressing Fourier's shoulder, him dumbfounded by the sight of a grown man drawn to the very edge of his seat by the sheer power of female seduction. Without unplugging his gelatinous gaze from the flatter square of screen, Gregory Fourier volunteers a cursory shrug against the slight resistance of his supervisor's palm. Some might say that my passion for the six o'clock news is evidence of a profound empathy for others, compassion for the plight of the world, says Fourier. Empathy, compassion, mein Gott. Voss's hand withdraws before it is fatally contagious. But you're only watching this program so you can feast the disgusting eyeballs on her. Her? Her? It's either her or indulge the hideous social intimacy of the world. Mind you, if we can't rely on the heartfelt ascent of the broad and healthy mass of the people, but depend on tiny cliques that are self-interested and blasé by turns, our species would be intolerable, and our species would already be dead. Gregory twists in his seat to greet the frozen stiff frown of his teetering employer. And anyway, Hervos, what makes you think I'm not motivated by empathy? 
After all, one can experience empathy without being altruistic. He smiles. Hans Voss's forehead corrugates towards its tensile limit. He remains perplexed before his frown softens and he is thus moved to warm laughter. With animation fettered by concern, he struggles for the armholes of his Oxfam sheet robe, hearty laughter muffled through the mouthless hood. And why don't these KKK robes ever have a mouth hole? Well, you can't be faceless and have a voice, says Fourier. Yeah, yeah, smart ass. Remember, Hervos, one day you will no longer be loved. Hans Voss coughs out a formless laugh, and the ghostly white sheet puffs out before silently deflating. Well, we must all keep our little secret secret, yeah? Gregory nods autonomically, captivated by the sight of chlamydia love, masterfully shuffling papers on the news desk on TV. Next up, how humans are winning the war on disease. When chlamydia love mouths disease, she bears perfect white teeth. It is never a good thing to have to excuse yourself during a very important meeting to rush to the ladies' room or to spend much of your well-earned holiday in your hotel room because of the unmentionable. Now just imagine if those unmentionable movements cause your immune system to shut down completely. If it lasts for weeks or even months, the unmentionable can be considered a chronic disease. The body loses a lot of important fluids and electrolytes. According to the National Institute of Health, adults average one occurrence of the unmentionable each year, while our little ones have an average of two unmentionable episodes a year. So, while it's a relatively common complaint, if left untreated, the unmentionable can lead to severe dehydration and even the unmentionable, even death. Damn, she's good, he thinks, admiring her great big round tawny owl eyes twinkling in the lurid studio spotlight. Her lovely raven black hair swoops down with effortless carelessness to frame her perfectly oval pink blushing puce face. Her nose is also nice. Her cheekbones are nicely bony yet delicately defined without being too skeletal. Her mouth is an anaerobic work of art. Her chin is a sight for sore eyes and so, her, so are her eyes. Her great big twinkling round brown tawny owl eyes. I shall leave you and Chlamydia all alone, both together with the other six million viewers. Have fun and don't do anything I wouldn't do, ya? Yeah? Gregory is midway mouthing hair as Chlamydia brushes a raven black filament from her work of art mouth. Don't go, he drawls. Stay. Nine Danka, I got the real flesh and blood lady waiting for me. She says her name is Tiffany. She's bright like the diamond. She also has interesting girlfriends if you're interested in human interaction. I'm happy home alone with Chlamydia, says Fourier. You have fun at your fancy dress lynching party. The telephone rings out, switches to machine, and an amplified female voice says, this is a message for Gregory Fourier. I wanted to, speaking, is this Gregory Fourier, Pre Professor Gregory Fourier, speaking, who is this? Oh, oh, it's Chlamydia Love. Fourier hangs up, discards the cordless to observe how his modified genetic algorithm scours the scurf edge of fractal intelligibility on the computer screen before him. Chaos is nailing God to the myopic dimensions of human progenitors, yet Hans Voss is playing a trick that relies for its conceit upon a far greater magnitude of improbability. 
Through the prismatic tinge of green security glass, Gregory Fourier witnesses a compact electric car wheeze to a halt alongside the security cabin that delineates the no-man's land from the concrete gradient, gradient leading up to the door of the laboratory. Fourier summons a preemptive image of Boss, Hans Voss, blind drunk, cascading from the vehicle with a grotesque chlamydia love look-alike in tow. Yet the feline specimen, specimen emerging from the purring car is anything but a grizzled facsimile. Gregory Fourier can only portend the apparition before him as a prodigal gift from God. And yet, with each solid footstep planted up the ramp in his direction, the sublime otherness, so characteristic of Chlamydia Love's esoteric televisual form, begins cross-fading before Fourier's very own eyes. As the obdurate mass of her physical form becomes tangible, the allure of her gossamer essence begins to wilt and wane. To wit, when she is close enough with hand reaching out to shake his, the blemish on her cheek, now the sole focus of Fourier's attention, it nonetheless pampered with silica foundation and lightly dusted to give a more matte natural finish seems to scream out to him it even begins yelling his name out loud Professor Gregory Fourier Professor Fourier Chlamydia Love is looking at him with an expression of surprise he didn't quite understand. What had she expected? What could she expect? He was a professor, a scientist. He was squat, balding, sweaty. He possessed a cartilaginous countenance, inflexible, intangible. The sum features hovering in holographic composition about the region of the skull, facial expressions manifesting in the manner of cheap animatronics. Social pleasantries came to fruition as though the owner was racked with colic, hence smiles if indeed they were smiles, seemed governed by the same internal agony that makes an infant smile ambiguous. Not that he was rude, just severe. The laboratory had that effect on people. I did try to call you, she says. Several times, she adds. So did my researcher. I've come to see the apparatus. Gregory Fourier steps aside for his guest. On entry to the fluorescent reception, she glances about, adjusting to the brilliant light. He wonders where he should take her first. His first thought is the canteen. The vending machine might help break the ice. He motions to the door and then towards the wing-back chairs flanking the single boutique sofa facing the monolithic TV screen. She chooses the sofa, perches on the edge of the seat opposite his TV. An uncomfortable symmetry grows in Gregory Fourier's mind. Where is everyone, she says. Your technicians, she says. Your assistants, she says. It's just me, he says. I work alone, he says. I forget to eat when I'm working. I'm here to interview you about your secret apparatus, but first I would like to see it. She sighs out loud when he unhitches her bra with tooth and tongue and takes her in his mouth. He tumbles her onto his futon and looms over her with faux malevolence. Chlamydia had very recently delivered a reportage piece on the weird phenomenon of love at first sight, titled Love at First Sight, Fact or Fiction. As she falls deep into Gregory's insatiable kisses, she considers whether her cynicism on the subject of love at first sight would have been so certain if she were doing an intimate piece to camera right this moment. Who would have believed, she asks herself, burying her hands in his thick, curly, dark black hair, that a simple anonymous tip from an anonymous German would have changed her whole life? Gregory 
proved to be as inventive in the bedroom as he was in the laboratory. He had little talent for pretty words, but she had no doubt the words he spoke were utterly sincere. It was as if time stood still. He told her how attractive she was, how much he enjoys being with her, how pleased he is that she understands him well enough to be attracted to him too, and he touches her physically and emotionally in ways that made her realise she would never be satisfied with mortal men again. Gregory cups her face between his hands and gives her a smile that churns her insides out. You're as special as I always knew you would be, he murmurs. Beautiful, yes, but also clever and interesting and honest. She tangles her bare legs around his and reaches up to stroke the mitered angle of his concrete jaw. They communicate with kisses and sighs. Amid the human gasps and incoherent animal murmurs are lingering touches, bestial scratches and mammalian nibbles. Gregory is the pure physical bluntness of lead, thudding, 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 but his lovemaking is also agile and poetic. Thus, Chlamydia's lungs rasp as he thrusts smoothly into her, stealing her breath and her heart at the same time. All about the room, cosmic hurricanes begin to spill out into the void, shattering the space, bursting with immeasurable force of the imaginary upon quaking towers, rhomboidal, opalescent, shimmering arches sinking upwards to unattainable zeniths. Tumbled matter encounters vast clefts. The erratic merges with cascading labyrinths. Chlamydia and Professor Gregory Fourier's bodies are dissolving into thin air, but before Fourier disappears forever in the pounding morass of intertwining molecules, his little voice can be heard shouting out loud, Get rid of meaning. Your mind is a nightmare that has been eating you. Now eat your mind. She adds... I thought I could spend some time with you, if that wouldn't be too bothersome. Me and a small camera crew take a glimpse into the life of the world's most inventive inventor, but first I need to see the apparatus. Having come to from his libidinous reverie, the clamoury, clammy professor leads the way through a corridor choked by floor-to-ceiling animal cages. On hearing human footsteps, the chimpanzees begin chattering with excitement, but on seeing chlamydia, they cower in their cages, performing clumsy gestures of gentle shame. Gregory Fourier runs his fingers gently along the wire to calm them as he passes by. Shh! Don't be silly, Albert. Hi, Yorick. How's it going, Patricia? Hi, Mike. Put it away, Gordy. Hi, Abel. Hi, Miss Baker. Hi, Bonnie. Hi, Sam. Hi, Ham. Hi, hi, Ibrick. Say hello to Chlamydia, Vernie. Hi, Chlamydia, says Vernie in a primate Soviet growl. The professor opens the pressurised portal to the main lab and Chlamydia enters at his gentle request. Inside, the fluorescent lights flare according to the sudden physical exertion of the small monkey manning an exercise bicycle more to the floor and connected by jump leads to a fizzing dynamo. That there's Darwin, my right-hand man Friday, my only technician. Faster, Darwin, faster. Earn your banana milkshake. There's a good boy. Darwin pedals hard and struggles uphill for a humanoid smile. Despite Darwin's, Darwin's courageous sprint, Chlamydia's visible disappointment has nowhere to hide in the excoriating luminosity of the glowing white lab. The empty workstations and computer terminals vastly underwhelm the journalist's expectation for a more vibrant sign of the throbbing gristle of scientific genius. Oh, she says, disappointed. 
Oblivious to her disappointment, the stimulated scientist ushers his guest to the nearest terminal and clicks the mouse for the screen to come alive. Come and see. Look. And on the screen, a diagram. You see, I've been studying voltage-gated calcium channels because they participate in brain functions such as synaptic transmission and patterned nerve activity. By combining psychopathological studies of normal and brain-damaged subjects with the computational tools of theoretical neuroscience, I can study the functional architecture of high-level cognitive capacities such as spatial attention and general cognitive ability. It's all just computational epistemology, really. I'm just trying to figure out how brain make decisions, how we discover stuff, how we learn, how we store, and how we adapt. You know, stuff like that, for instance. Well, for instance, what is emotional consciousness? What is the purpose of God? What are the implications of mirror neurons for empathy, conscience, and moral intuition? What is mind-brain identity theory? What is the comparative nature of mental illness? How does disease figure in the evolutionary adaptation of the brain? A, pe a pregnant pause issues forth. Despite Professor Fourier's elegant brain, his inelegant intrapersonal skills are unlikely to offer chlamydia a graceful way to decline the obligation to comment intelligently. Disease, she says, clutching at straws, and as her lip performs its predictable curl, he sees how the gums are angry and have whitish herpetic lesions. Sorry, so sorry, he says. Please excuse my rudeness. What I meant to say is, I work with monkeys. From the far end of the lab, a caged monkey barely stifles a laugh. Mortification draws chlamydia towards the animal as one might towards a pet. At the cage, she sees how the animal is rocking yet writing, neurotically scribbling, his lowly abode littered with highbrow notes, tightly clenched balls of paper and broken biros. Some of the screwed paper balls have been posted through the cage onto the floor. Chlamydia picks one up, unwraps it, and reads aloud. Night descended like an embalmer's sheet. She silently beseeches Professor Gregory for an adequate answer and receives a sheepish shrug. It's a common byproduct of prolonged vivisection. The more I experiment on, on him, the more he feels the need to express the conditions of his pain. He started writing six months ago, but he can't quite find the perfect first sentence. I think they're all pretty good. He's just super, super self-critical, punishingly so, I think. Chlamydia gathers, gathers up more knotted balls, unfurling and flattening them on the desk. The night was full of homicidal impulses. She unwraps another. The night was solid as livid meat on a morgue slab. And another. The night felt as long as it was wide. And another. The night edged towards day like a blind man at the seaside. And another. One monkey's day is another monkey's night. Chlamydia looks Fourier in the eye. I want to see the apparatus right now. The pressurized airlock to the restricted access room hisses pure air as chlamydia's gasp leaks foul monoxide. Inside the room is an elaborate description of scientific panic, cascading from failure to temporary solution. Catastrophe is stabilized long enough for the professor's absent mind to receive the next calamity with earnest surprise and a consequently novel solution. He catches chlamydia squirming at the tarry, dull blood shrieking in oxidized gouts up wall and ceiling. He notices her wince at the sharp bin overflowing with inky 
swabs and bloody handwritten notes. He sees her jaw fall loose at the sagging shelves stacked with jars of immortal biopsy tissue, sprouting sinewy root into murky fluid, and the odd pickled primate baby mooning down with cheerless, washed-out eyes. On the professor's desk, company to a worn microscope, Dr. Edward Pernkopf's Anatomy of Man lies spread-eagled and well-poured. The central workstation is solid armature to an odd assemblage of medico-scientific tackle recombined in modified purpose. Dissecting forceps are tightly clamped to the bench to hold fast a well-numbed mouth gag pierced with stainless nerve hooks pulled taut by clip curettes to an eager set of dilator forceps with lung spatula wedged between ear polypus forceps and a shock-absorbing sponge, all held by a set of salad tongs to allow a dripping syringe held laterally by tissue forceps, towel clamps and tongue depressor nailed to the wall with a percussion hammer, from which a vascular dilator serves a gall duct dilator, hemorrhoidal ligator, a bristling manifold of aneurysm needles by way of lengths of rubber section tube which draped the floor where radiating tube has been snipped by supercut scissors, nipped and compressed by speculum vasectomy forceps, fastened by dissecting forceps, crimped by hemostatic clamps, clamped by tubing and intestinal clamps to regulate the flow of fluid into the score of plastic test tubes which bulge like infected teats on the business end of the rubber lengths. All around, rendered spent pliers, power cutters, ligature forceps, tissue forceps, a bone hook, handheld retractors, self-retaining retractors, bone and rib shears, barbecue tongs, forceps, bone files, a monkey wrench, chisels, elevators, gouges, a ring cutter, bone rungures, a handsaw, ice cream scoops, a mallet and a pair of rib spreaders all arranged in helpless disarray like spare parts at a pathologist's funeral. It's a peculiar apparatus, says Chlamydia, gazing at it with a certain admiration. Chlamydia's peripheral vision clocks Darwin, slip inside the room before the airlock shuts and regenerates. The monkey possessed by an expression of such dog-like resignation that one could set him free to roam around the labyrinthian laboratory complex and would only have to whistle for him to return. The professor begins crawling under the apparatus, then climbs up a ladder to inspect the upper parts. These are jobs that Darwin or some other such monkey mechanic might undertake. But the professor carries them out with great enthusiasm, maybe because he is particularly fond of his apparatus or because there is some other reason why one could not trust the work to lessen beings. It's all ready now, he cries and climbs back to the ladder. He washes the oil and grease from his dirty hands in a bucket of water. Now, have a closer look, he says, drying his hands with a towel and points to the device. The apparatus should work entirely on its own now, of course. Breakdowns can happen. I really hope none will occur today, but we must be prepared for their eventuality. The apparatus is supposed to keep going for 12 hours with, without interruption if needs be, but if any breakdowns do occur, they'll only be very minor and we'll deal, we'll deal with them right away. Don't you want to sit down, he asked, pulling out a chair for chlamydia. The latter did not refuse. As you see, the apparatus consists of three parts. The one underneath is called the bed, the upper one is called the inscriber, and here in the middle, this moving part is called the harrow. The harrow, Chlamydia asks. Yes, the harrow, says the professor. The name fits. The needles are arranged as in a harrow, and the whole thing is driven like a harrow. 
although it stays in one place and is in principle much more artistic. You'll understand in a moment. The subject is laid out here on the bed. First I'll describe the apparatus and only then let the procedure go to work. That way you'll be able to follow it better. Also, I must warn you that a sprocket in the machine is excessively worn and really squeaks. When it's in motion one can hardly make oneself understood. So here is the bed. As I said, the whole thing is completely covered with a layer of cotton wool, the purpose of which you'll find out in a moment. The subject is laid out on his stomach on the cotton wool, naked of course. There are straps for the hands here, for the feet here, and for the throat here to tie the subject, subject in securely. At the head of the bed, here, where the subject, as I have mentioned, first lies face down, is this small protruding lump of felt, which can easily be adjusted so that it presses right into the subject's mouth. Its purpose is to prevent him screaming and biting his tongue to pieces. Of course, the subject has to let the felt in his mouth, otherwise the straps around his throat would break his neck. That's cotton wool, asks Chlamydia. Yes, it is, says the professor, smiling. Now listen, both the bed and the inscriber have their own electric batteries. The bed needs them for itself and the inscriber for the harrow. As the soon as the subject is strapped in securely, the, bread is set in, the, bed, the bed is set in motion. It quivers with tiny, very rapid oscillations from side to side and up and down simultaneously. As you see, the shape of the harrow corresponds to the shape of a man. This is the harrow for the upper body, and here are the harrows for the legs. This small cutter is the only one designated for the head. Is that all clear to you? Chlamydia's head nods keenly. When the subject is lying on the bed and it starts quivering, the harrow sinks. It positions itself automatically in such a way that it touches the subject only lightly with the needle tips. Once the machine is set in this position, the steel cable tightens up into a rod, and now the performance begins. The harrow seems to do its work uniformly. As it quivers, it sticks the tips of its needles into the subject, which is also vibrating from the movement of the bed. Come and see, he says. Chlamydia stands up slowly. You see? Two sorts of needles are in a multiple arrangement. Each long needle has a short one next to it. The long one cuts and the short one squirts water out to wash away the blood and keep the cutting always clear. The bloody water is then channeled here in small grooves and finally flows into these main gutters and the outlet pipe takes it away. The professor points with his finger to the designated path that the bloody water is designed to take. Chlamydia feels behind her with her hand, wanting to return to her chair, but to her surprise experience a feeling of soft fur and turns, seeing that Darwin has also accepted the professor's invitation to inspect the arrangement of the harrow up close. He leans forward this way and that. He runs his cheeky little monkey eyes over the apparatus over and over again. Noticing the intrusion, the professor shoes him away. Suddenly, the professor scales the shorter ladder, turns a wheel and calls down, watch out, move to the side. Everything starts moving. If the wheel had not squeaked, it would have been marvellous. The professor threatens the wheel with his, with his fist, as if he is surprised by the disturbance it creates. Then he spreads his arm, apologising to Chlamydia, and switches the machine off before quickly clambering down to ground level. The professor stands with legs apart and hands at hips. He smiles at Chlamydia cheerfully and climbs onto the bed of the apparatus. Okie pokey, let's get this party started. If it had already become clear that the professor understood the machine thoroughly, one might well get alarmed now at how it obeyed him. He only had to bring his hand near the harrow for it to raise and sink several times until it had reached the correct position to make room for him. He only had to grasp the bed by the edges and it already began to quiver. Are you going to give me a demonstration, says Chlamydia, anxious, drawn to the edge of her seat? I surely am, but is it safe? You won't be 
be harmed. It's only theoretical. Oh, yes, 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 don't you worry your pretty little head. The stump of felt moves up to his mouth. One could see how the professor really doesn't want to accept it, but his hesitation is only momentary. He immediately submits and takes it in. Everything is ready, except that the straps hang down on the sides of the apparatus. Darwin springs forward to buckle his master in. Hardly are the straps attached when the machine starts working. The bed quivers, the needles dance on his skin, and the harrow swings up and down. Chlamydia stares for some time before rem remembering that a wheel in the apparatus is supposed to squeak, but everything is silent without the slightest audible hum. Then she hears a noise from up inside the core of the apparatus. The professor looks up too. Is the gear wheeling wheel going out of alignment? The machine is breaking up. Its quiet operation was an illusion. The harrow is now stabbing the professor, and the bed is not rolling the body but lifting, lifting it, quivering up into the needles. Chlamydia begins screaming and Darwin is chattering insanely. Woman and monkey wish for nothing less than the whole thing to stop, but can do nothing to expedite the shared desire. It is murder, pure and simple. The harrow is moving upwards and side to side with the skewered body. Blood flows out in hundreds of streams, not mixed with water. The water tubes have also failed to work. The professor's body will not come loose from the needles. Blood streams out and he hangs above the head bed without falling. The harrow wants to move back to its original position, but as if it realises that it cannot free itself of its load, remains hovering above. Help him! Help him! Chlamydia yells to the monkey, but the monkey is too small and unintelligent to do anything more than shriek and somersault on the spot. She wants to grab the professor's head to pull him off the needles. Against her will, she looks at the professor's agonised face. His lips are pressed firmly together. His eyes are bulging beyond the threshold of their meniscus. Yet his gaze is calm. The tip of a large iron needle has penetrated his forehead. The body finally slumps down flat on the bed, like nightfalls, solid as livid meat on an embalmer's slab. Good. Shall we do questions and answers? Are there any questions? <laughs> so, I, other than people just trying to get attention for themselves, do you get a lot of like hate mail or <laughs> protests or anything like that? Or you and your brother? Um, yeah, we get sort of all sorts of stuff, really. Um, I remember. The funniest letter we got um, a long time ago was this kind of like a tiny piece of paper that came in a tiny little envelope written by the tiny little handwriting. Then you read it and it said, it said something like, um, I've been following your work for many, many, many years, but I I, I, and I really appreciate your work, but um, I seem to find myself in an artless society. And you think, what does that mean? And then you look up the top and it says HMP Winchester, which means Her Majesty's Majesty's prison, Winchester. So, you know, this person who's been locked away for years has been following our work. So, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. I mean, I've had paint chucked over me. Um, we were discussing this earlier. Yeah, all sorts of things. I mean, you also get fan mail as well, but it's kind of equally perverse. <laughs> I've had people send bits of bodily hair and sort of, you know, yeah, all sorts. I actually had um, I had some mad girl actually who who used to put sweets through my door, um, and 
Yeah, and then kind of she used to send me bundles of kind of schizophrenic notes, and then it kind of turned a bit violent. She kind of started. She she wrote this thing, and I mean, by the time I kind of realised I should do something about it, she wrote a letter saying, um, "Don't call the police. I'm not violent," <laughs> which I kind of read call, as "Call the police. I'm violent." <laughs> yeah. how easily this can provoke people hmm. and obviously it uh, I mean it's always easier to do this kind of slasher aesthetic if you want to provoke and to evoke hell because it's far more interesting than paradise but what I'm curious about is since you mentioned the mirror neurons the, at some point the, what, the mirror neurons oh yeah mirror neurons yeah story, right mm. um, what sort of reaction would you then expect if we're talking about mirror neurons and basically you are what you surround yourself by well, you said it yourself, hell's more interesting than paradise. Right. I mean, I kind of lead, lead a quite a normal, boring, happy life. And I'm kind of assuming that the, the idea of going to the studio and making art should, be, uh, should have something to do with an increase in pleasure. You know, but the last thing I want to do is bore other people with how kind of normal and boring my life is. That, you know, in a sense, the, what kind of what producing art does for me is that it kind of exped expedites certain fantasies I have about maybe my life being more interesting than it is. Um, and in terms of mirror neurons, I mean, that that's kind of, you know, that the the, the assumption that. Um, that that leads to sort of empathy or compassion is, you know, is I don't make that assumption at all. I mean, I think um, that, you know, on the on one level, it's very easy to see our work as, as a kind of a, a, a provocation on a personal level that you could, you know, that if it's somehow you you could kind of, you know, I, I have had the experience where people feel kind of personally attacked by the work, that they may make the mistake of thinking that the work is, is directed towards them personally, um, rather than the work being um, strategically something to do with an incitement to the discourse that seems to be absent, you know, political discourse, dis discourses about bodies, discourses about gender. I mean, the work is, is, is um, you know, Foucault uses the term incitement to discourse, and I, I would prefer that rather than provocation or shock. You know, the work is, you know, I was saying earlier to someone that, you know, we're very serious about humour because we see humour as being um, the thing that kind of uh, destabilises the relationship between morality and, and repression. It's, it's, it's the space between, for example, in its, in its, in its uh, most profound um, uh, instance, the relationship between death and humour. You know, in, in a sense, you know, uh, laughter or, or humour is the most appropriate response to death because it shares in its magnitude. Because what it does is it destabilises rational, a rational, uh, a rational attempt to actually co uh, to conceive what death is. So, yeah. Um, I'm, I'm under no illusion that that, that this work um, has any ambition to sit in the world happily without the expectation that there might be some uh, negative feedback. I mean, but you know, as far as I'm concerned, you know, there's no point making art unless you understand what the stake is, and I think there are things at stake in making art. And for me, it, it, it's it's a it's a 
in, in a sense, I, I think maybe um, in terms of what's possible politically on a wider scale, I understand that there is no possibility that what one can do is to, is to act marginally. And I think art, as, as any place, is a good enough site to actually make some kind of inroads into uh, uh, at, least, at least causing... Uh, um, um, uh, Problems to sort of you know dominant modes of thought. It can be prov provocative in terms of, of the way in which it can unleash different kinds of thought. And you know it's not very pleasant having paint chucked over you, but it is quite funny. <laughs> oh, yellowism is that vandalism, or when you own it like you own the boys? Is that? I mean, I don't. I'm. I'm not. I mean, the thing about yellowism is, I just, I just sort of can't really sort of see anything in that which um, pertains to being uh, theoretically or cerebrally or intellectually serious in any way. It is what it is, which is kind of uh, you know, it's attention-seeking, really. Um, and I think you know, uh, you know, iconoclasm and, and kind of you know, auto-destructive art is you know, I was, you know, is, is pretty much embedded in the notion of of, of the avant-garde, you know, o overcoming the old and and um, you know, over overwhelming the old, in fact, in a, in, a, in an aggressive way. So, um, you know, owning Goya's, I mean. You know, well, well, it, it, we had to pay for them in order to draw on them and, in actual fact, make them worth about five times more the value that they were when we bought them. So, you know, even by a you know, basic, basic kind of economic definition of vandalism, I would say that vandalism destroys value, whereas, in actual fact, we increased value. Not that that's what our aim was, but, I mean, in a sense, what, you know, what was interesting about that project is that, you know, the, the more we um, worked on the pieces, the more uh, money we made by making those pieces, and the more we could actually use that as a slush fund to buy the next set of Goyers. So, in a sense, instead of it being a kind of a singular gestural m move, which is, you know, some kind of, you know, kind of uh, petulant, flamboyant demonstration against modern art by a sing singular act, We've turned it into a um, um, uh, into a um, into a repetitive act of erasure that we have. We've worked on three or four sets, and we're you know hunting out the next. So in a sense, you know, the threat is not just to work on one guy, but to erase all of them. Interested. I'm not interested in thinking about that. It doesn't. It doesn't. No. It doesn't bother me in the slightest. You know, when the work that we worked on for two and a half years, the the, the, the hell piece that burnt in the Momart fire. I mean, the point about that was that you know that kind of. You know, what was interesting about that is that what it what it did is that it presented the notion that actually the the tendency to to, to how that work was considered once it was burnt was, was better than it was when it existed. That in a sense, you know, that we tend to we tend to um, you know we memorialize and we sentimentalize things which have kind of, you know, turned to kind of charcoal. Um, and in a sense, all that did was it provoked us into making three more of them. You know? 
So, I, you know, I'm not kind of looking for some kind of... Uh, I'm not really interested in, 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 in the, the, the notion that there's a... You know, that, that we're trying to find some kind of paternal home for our work. I'm not interested in that in the slightest. Really not. I mean, I don't really care where I, our work ends up. There's, a, there's an old uh, saying, hear no evil, speak no evil, see no evil. I'm not sure if it's religious or not, but uh, uh, do you have any thoughts about that old mindset? And it seems like it, it's... Sounds like a bumper sticker. <laughs> You know, I think, you know, there's something at stake in making art, you know, and I think, um, you know, I mean, to come up with another sort of kind of, you know, uh, a threadbare aphorism, you know, you have to break an egg to make an omelette. You know, I think you could have it on a, on the back of a chef's car, I don't know. <laughs> No, I, I think, I think, I think the, I think the idea of making art is, is, you know, I, I think that, you know, it's, you know, I can make, I can make two choices. Either I can go to the studio and paint pictures of flowers because, because I like flowers. But that, what's that got to do with anyone else? Who, who's, who's interested in that? And um, what has that got? I mean, I, mean, I think the, the point about making art, as far as I'm concerned, is that you can optimize a, a connection with things that exist, that things are in the world. There is, there's a kind of a radical potential in making art because within the realms of what you do you can you can you can um, you know the very nature of making art is that it is that is it is it is self-criticizing it, it, it encourages self-doubt it encourages the notion that what is presented must be overcome you know that sounds like a terrible sort of Nietzschean sort of but you know it, the, the point about art is is that it's it's its trajectory is something to do with with its speculative experimental it doesn't want to settle for stability it, it seeks out instability um, and so you know um, you know that the, 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 there are there are certain ways to do that and there are certain ways to optimize the the stakes in a way you know and I think you know I think our work um, more than provocative or shocking or horrible I think it's funny I think you know. I always get this kind of question from people saying, you know, you know, why is the work so, you know, why are you trying to shock people? Is the work, you know, why is the work shocking? And I've never really met anyone who's shocked by the work. You know, I've always heard that there are people who are shocked by it, but it's always someone quoting someone that they know. You know, it's always journalists saying that people are shocked by the work, and you say, yeah, but you shocked? They say, no. Well, of course you're not, because the work's not shocking. You know, a lot of, um, you know, the, res the response to the Goya drawings was that people kind of um, they they um, inflate the melodrama. You know, I often hear people say, you know, when you drew on the Goyas, there was a huge public outcry. Nobody, nobody, nobody knew. Nobody cared. It didn't matter. You know, there was an outcry within a kind of a, a kind of a, 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 the, the territory, the domain of a small kind of cultural elite. But they were kind of, they were kind of, you know, if you think about what art does in it, at its at its most radical, the problem is is that it, it's it's a kind it's appropriated by a kind of a liberal discourse that seeks to invite the protestations and the anti of artists because they want to define their boundaries by by showing that they're tolerant and their boundaries are kind of liquid. You know, the, pro the problem with making art is that however um, aggressive you try and test those boundaries and you think that maybe you're making some critical or radical attack against the notion of what you think is a dominant, the dominant adopts it because it is the very thing that's invoking your tantrum. 
You know, so this is the problem. So, the, so maybe what happens is that you might have to seek out ways in which your 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 critical uh, uh, attacks against the dominant are, are are less coherent, more arbitrary, more random, less able to be appropriated into the logic of assumption of course, or, or, or appropriation. You know, so maybe the point about it is to kind of produce a kind of a, a work that has that you know that what is it going to end in, you know, end up in a museum? I mean, if you make work like this, does it end up in a museum? Well, actually, as 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 much as your antics can try and produce works of art that look as if they don't deserve anywhere, these things are in museums. So even the radicality, even the kind of the 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 kind of the 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 you know all of the kind of little traumatic um, attacks that we've evidenced and we've, we've, we've aimed at the art world and the notion of making art and the bourgeois public or the intelligentsia, these things are, these are the lifeblood of the very people that we're attacking. This is the problem. The problem is, is that, the, you know, that, 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 that there is a logic of, of critical redemption to any you know, uncanny, abject, nasty, blasphemous, transgressive work of art is always appropriated into the logic of critical culture. And so, in a sense, critical culture is, 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 is emasculated. It has no function. So, you know, let's all stop. Go home. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I think you know. I think one one has to find different ways to, um, you know, the, the dominant isn't some kind of tyrannical, um, um, ag aggressive, rigid, uh, uh, oppositional sort of figure. It's a, it's a, it's a kind of it's a it's the, it's a, it has a soft underbelly, and we're all kind of somehow nestled up against it. You know, we, it, it invites it invites its 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 boundaries to be attacked because it measures. Its, its tolerance, the liberal society, our liberal society, measures its tolerance by the antics of artists. Uh, I have two very quick questions. First of all, as a child, who destroyed more toys, you or your brother? Um, we didn't have toys when we were children. Ah, using them now, excellent. Uh, secondly, we didn't have daylight, so we couldn't see them. You, yeah. you, you, and both you and your brother deal with so many different forms of art. You know, tonight we saw music. You have, yeah. If you were limited, now you're not. If we were what? Sorry. No, if you were limited, you're yes. not. But you had to choose one form, be it hmm. film, be it music, be it writing. Um, which would you choose and why? Um, flower arranging. <laughs> Because I'm particularly good at it. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I, you know, I think uh, I think that you know, I think the 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 reason that we're interested in doing so many things is because there's a kind of uh, a, a, a hysteria, and I mean that in a kind of a Freudian sense. You know, that that we're kind of that we that. That in a sense, what we're trying to do is that we're trying to we're trying to surprise ourselves by stepping outside of the assumption about what would follow. So in a sense, we're trying to um, you know we're trying to produce a kind of a schizophrenic body of work rather than something linear. Because as far as we're concerned, when you produce something linear, um, it's it, it's 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 far more easy to appropriate. And I suppose what we're trying to do is we're trying to kind of. Um, um, it's a kind of a scattergun approach to making art, you know. Um, uh, 
And I think it's, you know, in a sense, it's kind of, you know, in, in a sense, it's kind of like, um, um, you know, it's, it's that, that, that we, we kind of, we, we try and attack the subject. We try, we try and attack the idea with, uh, with, with as many perspectives at once in order to, to kind of, uh, to, to sever the notion that our work has anything to do with autobiography. And, and sever the idea that our work is to do with us as people who are expressing kind of, um, you know, you know, the internal mechanisms of, of, of ego and you know, that that in a way, in a way, um, uh, you know, we're, we're kind of we're interested in a kind of a frenetic approach because because it's because it's it's I suppose it's a way of trying to destabilize the stability of the viewer. That in a sense, what you do is if you go on this kind of frenzied berserk attack that what you do is you kind of you uh, you 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 make it impossible to try and reduce the work to one particular thing and in some sense as a strategy it's it's um, it it becomes overwhelming you know I, I guess you know I was talking to students yesterday at American University and I kind of thought of a, uh, a funny metaphor I was asking one of the students you know, you know appealing to them on my knees begging saying but you know have you seen the spinal tap I mean is it volume 11 is it volume 11 and I guess, you know, that's kind of the, one of the one of the kind of the 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 the, the, um, the idea of amplitude, the idea of volume, the idea of noise and intensity is very important in our artistic practice. And some in some senses, volume eleven is very meaningful to us because it because it because it means that the work is an assault. It's 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 about kind of it's about absolute interference rather than some kind of decidedly mature approach appealing to the the good grace of the viewer to kind of come and understand us. We're kind of we we we're just we're just not interested. We're just kind of like trying to kill them, kill their eyes with art. Didn't Duchamp do this a hundred years ago? Sorry, say again? Didn't Duchamp do this a hundred years ago? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah. And probably someone asked the same question a hundred years before that. Hey, Jake, what's the first thing that comes to mind when you're wrong with McDonald's? Um, chocolate milkshake. <laughs> um, you know, I think that I'm interested in, in, in McDonald's is, um, you know, we're, we're interested in, um, you know, it's, it's a, you know, it, as, a, as a historical motif, it's interesting to plot the trajectory of a company that started life on the basis of a real uh, idealistic principle, which is the idea of free, you know, cheap food for everybody, it was a kind of as part of the, you know, emancipatory, emancipatory discourses of the Enlightenment that people could, people were were free to eat, the, you know, cheap food. Everyone could eat meat, which was a very rare thing. It was kind of, it was also futures. It was a, it was future food. You know, the idea that what it did was that it liberated people from having to cook in their houses. You could drive up to a uh, a drive-through and get your thing through through the little hatch and eat in your car. So you could eat at velocity. It was about acceleration, it's about the future. And when you look at this, this, this kind of strange trajectory that starts off all nice and fluorescent and happy and whatever, at a certain point, at a certain, certain point on this kind of strange capitalistic trajectory, the clown loses his humor and becomes litigious. 
you know. And then suddenly people start pointing out that actually, you know, they're kind of uh, uh, chopping trees down in order to, to, to cattle graze. And so, so suddenly this thing which embodies the notion of, of an, of an, of an idealised future, almost a kind of a utopian notion of food, becomes almost responsible for the ends of the earth. You know, so it goes from utopia to dystopia. And in a sense, if you follow, if you plot that trajectory, it's also the same trajectory that, that idealistic capitalism follows. And it's, it, you know, so in terms of a motif, it's very, it's quite a nice way of actually, you know, you, it's kind of uh, an anthropo anthropological motif that plots the downfall of the West. I mean, it's great. I mean, what they do is they solve the solution by painting McDonald's green. And I think one of the reasons they don't sue us is because I think they've got to that phase in their kind of reconfiguration where if they start suing us, it would look bad. You know, they've become kind of morally... I mean, what's interesting is that they've kind of suddenly kind of taken on the mantle of being moral about their, their immorality, you know, which is quite interesting. Could you speak of uh, a time in your in your uh, artistic process when uh, you were surprised or you discovered something that you didn't realize existed before? It's quite ambiguous. Um, I don't. Uh, what do you mean? Go on. Try again. Like you're locked in, you're uh, such as that one, the one piece where there's like five thousand toy soldiers in this sort of yeah. cavalcade. Yeah. I mean, in the process of creating those five thousand observers, like this sort of discovery, like oh, this is you know, like yeah. in the process. Yeah, I mean, I think um, those things take a long time to make, and. Um, and also, if you think about some of those, I, there, were, there were these machine pieces that you may have seen. These are bronze. They take forever to make. You have to make them out of wax first, and then you invest them, and you do lost wax. You, you know that these, these, that a lot of our work um, takes a long time. And in the process of making the thing, once you have the components, which you, which you are then kind of, you know, uh, intending to put together, what happens is that the work begins to present certain ideas itself in a way. You know, um, so that if you're kind of, you know, if you've got sort of 100,000 little figures on a bench that you want to put on a diorama, things start to kind of occur. You begin at one end and it kind of, they start to present themselves, you know. Um, I don't think, you know, if you think about some of those big um, diorama pieces, we have, we, we, we have ideas about what things will be going on in them general ideas, but some, some of the things which um, are more specific occur almost spontaneously as we're making the things. And that's just because, um, um, you know, the components, you know, they, they kind of, they, they suggest their own structure in a way, or they suggest their own solution. Um, I can't really answer, I'm not, yeah, I don't know if that's a very good answer actually. can't really think how else. Hi. Hi. Thanks for sharing your work with us. Pleasure. Um, I'm really intrigued in your thinking and how you think. Yeah. What do you read? <laughs> that sounds like it could be really confessional on my part if I tell you that. Um, I, I read all sorts of things. Actually, I don't. I, um, I read... <laughs> I read... 
I've been reading a book at the moment called um, The Conspiracy Against the Human Race by Thomas Ligotti. He's a great, he's an American philosopher, he's a very good, very good writer. I read people like um, Bataille a lot, uh, people like Deleuze and Guattari a lot. My favourite writer is Deleuze, I'd say. Um, people like Nick Land, Ray Brazier, uh, uh, Keith Ansel Pearson, um, Sadie Plant. Well, you know, the usual, usual lot. I mean, I don't really read novels because um, I, I, I started. I tried to read novels. I started reading a lot of Vonnegut novels, but I just realised how what a whingy old wanker he is. <laughs> You know, really. And then I heard that he was the head of the humanist um, humanist society, and that made me really, kind of, really, I felt like I'd, I felt abused. You know, like I'd been sleeping with the enemy. Or reading with the enemy, yeah. No, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, uh, or, or actually, no, the, 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 the novels I like, I like Celine, Journey into the, and Journey into the, Dev and Journey into the Night, and um, Death on the Installment Plan. Um, I mean, you can see there's a kind of a pattern um, emerging, lots of death. Um, it's the kind of one big real thing that happens to us, isn't it, dying, really? So it's kind of important <laughs> to get a kind of uh, an idea about what it is before it happens. <laughs> and that seems to be kind of quite an interesting idea that we kind of, that in terms of the, you know, the, 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 the notion that we have kind of attained some kind of um, presiding consciousness and yet, you know, we still haven't had it, we still don't have a grasp on what the notion of finitude means. Life is a waste of life, isn't it? I mean, it depends on whether you think there's purpose and stuff. I mean, I think that uh, part of the problem about—I um, mean, if you think—I mean, yeah, it's a waste of life thinking about death. But if you think about pretty much 98% of our culture, it's pretty morbid. So, in a sense, how, whether we kind of, you know, face it. I mean, it's an interesting philosophical question. I mean, we can have a lot of pleasure thinking about death. I don't sit around thinking about death like it's a terrible, looming, seething thing that's coming towards me, and I'm trying to protect myself from it. You know, I think it's a really fantastically interesting thing, and it kind of it pervades. I think it pervades pretty much all all, all strata of culture. You know, it, you know, it pervades us because the notion of consciousness has to deal with death. You know, an animal doesn't have consciousness. It doesn't have a kind of an aperceptual understanding of its, of its existence because it doesn't need it hasn't needed to utilise a kind of uh, a, 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 a contrasting understanding of, of existence based on a fear of death the second we contrive of the notion of death we begin to fear it the second we fear it we contrive uh, a system of thought that tries to compensate that fear that's what culture is pretty much and I would say there's no culture that's, that culture isn't about anything else. It's a compensation. You know, Freud, Freud came up with the kind of the notorious statement that the, the aim of life is, the aim of all life is death. You know, which is kind of quite an obvious statement. But what he suggests is that all that happens in between the two things is just the kind of a, a set of ornamentations that make this, the inevitable transition from one to the other kind of agreeable. Once you understand that it's going to happen, it's very difficult to approach this thing without kind of uh, trying to produce a form of, 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 of secretion or aggregate form of culture in your life that kind of is a marker of your passing. Thank you. Pleasure. Come again.
ones there? The boys that are on Instagram. No, we've been buying more. We've been working on some other ones. Yeah, and we've moved on to the Caprichos as well. We've moved, we've, uh, we've widened our, broadened our horizon on Goya. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, we've been working on Goya prints. Um, and I think, you know, you know, it sounds like an audacious claim to kind of erase Goya prints, but in, in a sense, one of the reasons that we are interested in, in, in that work particularly is because, in, in a sense, it's, it's one of the first works that was based upon mass distribution. So, in a sense, you know, the melodrama of drawing on Goyas is kind of slightly, you know, it's overplayed, really, because these things are about, you know, they're, they're kind of like, they're, 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 mechanic, they're, they're about mechanical reproduction. They're kind of the first works of art that were about, you know, the kind of photocopy. You know, so in a sense, you know, it's very interesting that they're they're kind of so institutionally revered and protected, when in actual fact, they kind of undermine that kind of that kind of notion of scarcity, because they are about distribution and dissemination. So in a sense, you know, they, you know, on on, on two levels, one of our interests is is the fact that actually, um, as a you know, they're often cited as an indictment of man's inhumanity against man, and and, and as a as a kind of a, the most the, the apex of, of of the depiction of, of atrocity as war art. And yet, what you know, the reason we're interested is is in in how um, they have been so thoroughly um, coerced into this institutional institutional reading, that which is a moralistic reading, a reading based upon ideas of, of idealism, that the work of art can be beautiful and. Uh, you know, and the, what it what it leads to is a, is a notion that you should learn from these kind of from this terrible depiction. And in actual fact, when you look at the pictures, the the degree to which the artist who's, who's made these works spirals in, and and, and there are there are the degrees of pleasure in the drawing that seem to undermine the moral reading of the work. There's a kind of a libidinal economy in the work that actually un, under undermines the moralistic reading of the very work of that work. Home time. Thank you. Yeah.